Good evening. I'm Joseph Martinez, and welcome to Dead Time Stories, a podcast by Graveyard Shift dedicated to telling just that. Scary stories submitted by real people. Whether the stories are real or not, who knows? But they are scary. Now, please forgive me. I can take you no further. But your stories lie just ahead. Down the dark alleyway, your host awaits. Do be careful, though. Deadhead can be... Mercurial. I'll wait for you here. Godspeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I was just craving your company, and now here you are. Tonight, I have five tales about hauntings. In our first story, community service becomes a death sentence for these delinquent teens in a tale I call Dust Bunnies. One little crime can lead to some wild shit. I learned that the hard way. Caught smoking weed in the bathroom at school, and now I have to do community service. It's bullshit. So, I was on the bus with the other trouble teens, like Rod, who's all fist and no brains, Donald, who's a total klepto, and Nancy, who's a complete pyro. Our guidance counselor, Mr. Burke, is taking us to clean out some old office park building. We got off the bus, and I can't believe they expect us to do the job, even if it's free. It's some old office building. The place used to be owned by CompuCom, some tech company that went under. The town bought it, and they want to make it into a community center for ice cream socials, basketball, lock-ins, and other bullshit. I don't see how cleaning this place is supposed to make us more upstanding citizens. If anything, I'm just angrier at society. So, Mr. Burke gave us all the garbage bags and cleaning sprays and told us to take out all the trash and spruce things up. Rod's ready to throw down when Mr. Burke says he'll have the cops on us if we try anything. The place is a shit show. Dust and crap all over the place. Wrecked furniture and office supplies thrown all around. We split up and I end up walking with Nancy. She seemed pretty chill, talking about how she set all those trash cans on fire to cancel last month's standardized test. I can respect that. She even managed to sneak in a lighter. We'd get the job done a lot faster if I could just set the place on fire. Can't argue with that logic. Then we find something weird, some kind of lab broken computers all over the place in these metal cages and beakers. Not sure exactly what CompuComp did, but it was something shady. The place went under so fast they packed up and rushed out. We decide to have a look. Maybe we could grab some of the computer equipment and make some cash on the side. I take a closer look and there must be some big ass rodents. Because something chewed through a bunch of the cables and even into the ventilation shaft. I decide. What the hell? And look into the shaft. Only something looks back. 
there's all these beady little red eyes staring right at me. I've seen rats, and they don't do that. I tell Nancy there's a serious pest control problem in there, and we should go. Instead, Nancy gets curious. Let me take a peek. She pulls out her lighter and looks inside, like a moron. Something pops out. It's a fuzzball, like a literal dust bunny. It looks like it's made of dirt and hair and with little metal bits poking out. It has big red eyes that just stare right into us. It's like if a Furby went homeless. Nancy thinks it's cute. Come here, little fella, she says. Even reaches her hand out. I'm about to tell her it's a bad idea when chomp, it bit her. I help her pull the thing off her hand. It's like a goddamn mousetrap. Then we see them. Dozens of those red-eyed, dust bunny, cyborg, robot, whatever things surrounding us. It's time to bell and bell hard. We make a run for it. The dust bunny's right behind us. I can hear little motors whirl like a swarm of mosquitoes. We're trying to find the nearest exit when we find Rod and Donald, or what's left of them anyway. The little bastards are chewing them to ribbons. It's like they're little killer robots covered in dust and stray hairs and inside they're meat grinders. We keep running. One of those ankle biters literally bit my ankle as we round a corner. The swarm is coming straight for me, then whoosh! A shower of fire hits those fuzzy shits and they melt, screaming in garbled mechanical voices. I look to see Nancy holding a bottle of cleaning spray and her lighter. I yank the toothy monster off my ankle and chuck it. Nancy helps me up and we make our escape. We see the light of the front door, then we find Mr. Burke howling in pain, four dust bunnies biting off chunks of his legs. We couldn't leave him behind like that, so we rip the bunnies off him and carry him through the door, a herd of those monsters chomping behind us. We make it onto the bus and plop Mr. Burke in the driver's seat. When he revs up the engine, we realize we're not alone. While we're driving away, we have to fight off a few of the little monsters that got on board. They're biting our legs, trying to chomp our hands. It takes some maneuvering, but we manage to bust the back door open and chuck them onto the highway where they meet the grill of an SUV. I pass out from blood loss, and when I wake up, I'm in the hospital in a bed next to Nancy's. When word gets out the CompuComp mysteriously exploded, I get a fat settlement check from an undisclosed mega corporation, and Nancy asks me out. Overall, pretty good for getting caught smoking weed in the bathroom. Nothing like a near-death experience to bring people closer together, right? <laughs> I have a feeling we'll all be much closer by the end of our evening. Time for our first break. Don't be long. Order in the morgue. Order in the morgue. Our next tale is about a lawyer who will do anything to win a case. Anything. I call this one justice. They just don't understand. The people. That's who I always represented. In the best of faith and for the betterment of this city and the country. I have always protected the people. Yet they spit in my face. Had to cancel my book tour and now I'm stuck in my own condo. Those vultures in the press waiting to pounce on me to fill their growling stomachs. The absurdity of it. My landmark case was putting away the subway stalker. 
He assaulted and killed several women before I put him away. And some DNA evidence comes out and it flips everything on its head. Eric Crenshaw, a subway mechanic. It made sense. He had access and knew those tunnels better than anyone. Didn't matter if his log said he couldn't have been there at the same time as some of the attacks. It didn't matter that police had to strong-arm some witnesses who were simply too scared to say anything. He was our guy. Some nonprofit wants to make themselves big by making me look bad. So it turned out the DNA matched some delivery guy who had priors. He confessed too. Just some loser wanting fame for himself. I got the city justice. I got the victim's justice. Who cares if Eric was dead? It didn't exonerate him. And of course they bring race into it. White prosecutor puts away another innocent black guy. Right. The guy who was working those trains. I was protecting the city. I was protecting you. And they tossed me aside. My publisher tosses me aside. I'm the one who's supposed to be doling out justice, not be strung up by a mob of fools seeking social justice. Now, my entire record is in jeopardy. DNA evidence doesn't matter. Who cares how I got my convictions? But I got those monsters convicted. Falsified evidence? Like I needed evidence to get those thugs convicted. I... What was that? Swore I saw Eric Crenshaw for a moment. I've been seeing too many pictures of him because of that story. It's driving me mad. I literally wrote the book on justice, and this is how they repay me? More of my cases in question. Punk kids, those animals in the slums, those homeless savages. I was cleaning up this city, keeping it safe from the filth. My books, they were just on the table. How did they... Someone's in here with me. Which is why I have my gun on my hip. I knew one of those bastard activists would try and get a piece of me. Try and get their own justice. But the only justice is the justice of the law. And I know the judges, the DAs. I am the law and I am justice. I'll kill the intruder and they'll be back on my side. Nothing in my bedroom. Bathroom's empty. I go to the living room and I see someone, Eric Crenshaw, standing at my window looking over my city. Someone who looks like him? Hmm. Has to be. I fire all six shots and nothing. They pass right through him and blast out the window. It can't be. I had him dead to rights. He points at me, his voice barely a whisper. You are being tried. I feel a cold breath in my hair. Walter Harris, a homeless man I had convicted of robbery despite not having the money. I jump forward, startled. More and more of them. Darren Fuist, assaulting an officer. Zeke Fuentes, murder. The evidence may have not supported my cases, but I knew my conviction was enough to get them convicted. They surround me. How dare they? The law found them guilty. Death sentenced them in prison. They don't get second chances. They all point at me, accusing. I feel the cold night's air behind me. Crenshaw whispers, Admit your guilt or be damned. I laugh. I'm the guilty one? They were the ones who were convicted by a jury. I won't be strung up by these spirits. My foot slips on the pages of one of my books. I look up, and they're further away. I'm out the window, falling, falling. Those accusing eyes upon me as the city is about to receive me a final time. How will I be judged next? Looks like Margaret's last trial was an open and splat case. (laughs) Don't worry, Cadavis. I'm not throwing the book at you yet. Just a short recess while we take our next break.
from the courthouse to the prison cell. Our next tale takes us into an abandoned jail where three urban adventurers stream the last transmission. Streaming to you live, this is Chelsea with Urban Adventurers. With me, as always, is my right-hand Durant and my other right-hand Mitchell. We're about to enter the former Rockville Max, a maximum security penitentiary that was the biggest prison in the state, until it burned down. It's closed off to the public due to health concerns, and the place is falling apart. But when has that stopped us before? We're hopping this fence and making our way in. Going through the lobby now, looks like there was a visitor check-in area. Still some glass on the ground. Then again, those look like smashed beer bottles. Probably some hobos camping out and around here. Really makes me glad I got Durant and Mitchell here to be my muscle or human shields. I said it. We're going to make our way to the next room. Whole place is still ashy. Guess they never bothered cleaning. We're now in cell block B. They say the fire was started in the kitchen or a lower floor, but this place looks like it got the brunt of it. Ash is everywhere. It even looks like the bars on the cells melted. They may have been convicts, but oh man, nobody deserved to die the way they did. According to Mitchell's research, 83 people died in the fire, 70 convicts and 13 guards. It was such a disaster the state condemned the whole plot of land and have left it a wreck for years. No plans, just sealed off from the world. The Attica riots were around the same time, so it got pushed out of the headlines. Heading towards the kitchen now. We want to take a look and see Ground Zero. Not much came up in the reports, but supposedly a prisoner was killed in the kitchen by a guard, and the rest of the prisoners fought back, leading to the blaze and the entire place going up in flames. Ugh, probably should have brought face masks or something. Ugh, I can taste the ash. Durant, you see something? We're here. It's hard to breathe. Looks like the oven's exploded. Still here and all melted. The wreckage... The wreckage is just devastating. Good lord, there's still handprints. Handprints on the walls. This place is like Pompeii, frozen in ashes. And holy shit, can we get a closer look at that? It, it, it's a skeleton. Halfway through the wall, it's charred and they never removed it. What the hell? Mitchell says he sees something inside. We're going in for a closer look. We're inside the walls of the prison. It's a tight fit and no light, so we have to be slow and careful. There are skeletons everywhere. The flesh just burned right off. Mitchell found some tattered uniforms clinging to some of the bodies. Some are prisoners and others guards. Why would the police leave these bodies, though? Mitchell, stop! You're going too fast! Durant, stick by me! Mitchell, just, just, Mitchell, I've turned a corner and I, I, but he's, he's gone! If this is a joke, it's not funny. We're in unknown territory here. We didn't expect to be crawling inside the very walls of Rockville Max, especially neck deep in skeletons. Still no sign of Mitchell, but signs that other people have been here. I'm looking at strange writings on the walls. I can't read them. Looks like they're written in... I, I, don't, even, I don't even know. Some of the bones look arranged. This is getting really weird. Going to grab Mitchell and get the hell out of here. I just... Drant... Dread, hold on. He, he's in a he's in a pit full of bones. He's sinking. Grab my hand. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Durant, Durant. Where he he's gone. Oh, there's some kind of pit full of bones and dirt and and he just sank right through. I need to get out. Somebody call the police. 
The stream seems to be going. This is not a joke. This is not a joke. Something really weird is happening here. I'm backtracking. Where was the hole in the wall? I'm, I'm only operating by flashlight here. I'm seeing nothing. Nothing but walls and bones and those symbols. Everywhere I turn. What was that? Mitchell, Mitchell, is that you? No, 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 no. What the hell? What the hell? Get me out of here. Get away from me. Oh, shit, shit. Somebody call the police. It's behind me. Oh, God, somebody. Sounds like they discovered the easiest way out of prison was to go six feet under. <laughs> One thing is for sure, it works every time. Now don't try to escape dead time stories just yet, cadavers. We have more tales of terror after the break. Our next story takes us into a family home where a father's dying wish puts a great burden on his children. I call this tale Dibbuk. Tradition is what holds a family together. That's what David Goldman, my father, used to say. Though in many ways, I think it's what pulled us apart. It had actually been years since I had talked to him, since my brother Joseph had either. After our fallout, we only spoke over the phone or on holidays. And now, here we were, reunited with our mother, Julia, at his funeral. Standing under the gray skies and watching them lower him into the family plot. I regret it, really, I do. After the rest of the family and friends left, mother insisted that we stay at home before driving our separate ways. She brought us to the kitchen and read from father's will. It was the sort of thing that we expected, divvying up some money and property, but then it had a request. Father wanted Joseph to perform a ritual. Joseph couldn't believe Father had the audacity to ask for a favor, not after what had happened. When we were kids, Father pressed us into joining him in the sealing of the Dybbuk. A Dybbuk is a spiritual demon in Jewish folklore with many interpretations, but he insisted the family had one haunting us. They can be sealed in Dybbuk boxes to contain them, but we had to periodically reseal the box. I don't remember much, but Joseph had ended up bruised and beaten. Dad insisted it was the Dybbuk, but we didn't believe him. After that, we refused to take part in any of his traditions. Back in the kitchen, Joseph was furious that Father's dying wish was for him to perform the ritual. Mother pleaded with him to follow his traditions and wishes. She pulled the Dybbuk box from her coat and begged for Joseph to please reseal it. Joseph took it. A small square, no bigger than a cell phone, ornately cut and covered in Hebrew. Joseph looked at the box intensely, and he opened it. Mother screamed in horror, but nothing happened. There was no demon clawing its way out, no monster, just an empty wooden antique. Joseph said he would stay the night and then leave in the morning before retiring to his room. I comforted Mother. I was still upset with Father, but he's gone now. I'll do the ritual if you need me to, I told her. Only the eldest son can. It's tradition, she replied. I never cared for it. Joseph was the eldest son, so father seemed to prefer him. I went to bed soon after. It was so weird being back home and in my old room under these circumstances. And I felt terrible that we were still fighting like that. 
It was hard to sleep, even harder because I started hearing noises, scratching at my window. I looked out and saw the full moon illuminating everything, and a tree branch was scratching the glass. I watched as slowly, little by little, a web of cracks formed, spreading out, crisscrossing. I had barely had time to react before the window suddenly broke shards everywhere. The crash scared me, but broke me out of my trance. There was glass everywhere. I needed a broom. As I walked down the hall, I noticed cracks were also forming in here. They were everywhere. All along the walls seemed split into wallpaper and pulsed like living spider webs. I heard a scream from my mother's room. I ran in and the cracks were everywhere. The walls, the floor, the ceiling. Mother was on the bed and her hands were caught up in the cracks, almost chewing on her hands like they were mouths. Gnawing teeth, drawing blood as she screamed in terror. I grabbed her by the waist and pulled with all my might, my screams joining hers. Thankfully, Joseph ran in to help us, and together, we freed our mother from the cracks in the walls. With some effort, we moved to the front door, but it was the same, covered in cracks of webs with shifting grins, trying to devour us. I shook Joseph. It's the Dybbuk! Father was right! Joseph trembled in fright. Our father had his delusions, but this was the real thing. We have to seal it. I urged my brother and mother to the kitchen where we left the little box. This possession was spreading. The whole house was infected by this demon. The box that had been left on the kitchen counter was in the jaws of the wall. While Joseph treated mother's wounds, I leapt forward, grabbing the box. I pulled with all my might, fingers getting chewed up as I attempted to extract the accursed antique. I finally managed to loosen it with my bleeding hands. Ignoring the pain, I dropped the box onto the table and told Joseph to complete the ritual. Joseph sobbed. I don't remember. I never bothered to remember. I thought, I thought, the ritual must be done by the eldest son, my father said, per tradition. But I remembered. Fuck tradition. The walls seemed alive as they moved and gnashed around us. We didn't have much time. They seemed to breathe on us, a ghastly fog emanating. Joseph lit the candles around the table and his mother held tight. I placed the box in the middle and spoke the words in Hebrew concentrating as the walls closed in. The house screamed, the Dybbuk thrashing and screaming in ancient tongue. Still, I spoke, holding the box open as the unholy mist, its essence seeped from the walls and entered back into the box. With my still bleeding fingers, I locked and sealed the box. And just like that, the house had returned to normal, as if nothing had ever happened. My mother, brother, and I embraced. This was the one tradition we would keep alive. Oh, I love it when a family tradition is alive and well, especially when that tradition is a malicious spirit. Don't disappear just yet, cadavers. I have one last tale to tell. get when you blend heavy metal musicians with a place called Angel Town. Our next story, of course, called Gone to Heaven. They say hell is the worst place to go, but I have my reservations about heaven too. My name's Robert, 
though my stage name's Father Faustus, lead singer and songwriter of the Reign of Devils. You probably haven't heard of us. The rest of my band includes Ben Bezelblast, the drummer, and Louis Luce Lucifer on guitar. We've been best friends since childhood, and we've always wanted to make our own heavy metal music. The Satan thing was a must. We didn't actually worship the devil, and frankly, I'm kind of agnostic about God, but it helps sell tickets. I smoke real cigarettes on stage and switch to my vape pen in private. We were on our way to our next venue, mostly hitting up dive bars, biker bars, truck bars, you know, hipster bars. Southwest is full of them. Then, while we were driving through Texas, boom, worst case scenario happened. Flat tires, plural. I nearly careened off the road. Had a scare, but we pulled aside. Couldn't get a signal on my phone in the middle of nowhere. But as luck would have it, there was a town nearby, specifically Angel Town, written on a wooden plank sign. It was weird, but I figured it would beat having to wait for a car to pass by on this old-ass highway. We took some money and supplies and started walking. When we finally got there, holy shit. I mean, this place looked like a cross between one of those Wild West towns and one of the colonial reenactment towns complete with actors, men and women dressed like pilgrims, clothes that almost entirely concealed them. They were working, lugging carts of wheat and junk around. We were wearing leather, studs, and a bunch of clothes with pentagrams on them, including our band logo. In retrospect, not the best thing to wear in a situation like this, but we were desperate and figured they'd be chill. How wrong we were. We asked around. People hiss at us. They pointed us and called us sinners and Satanists. I tried to tell them that we were just in costume, but they were not too kind about it. Ben has this bright idea to go ask around in the church. See, there's no police station and nobody willing to talk to us. We figured that that was our best bet. We go in, and it's like we're walking into a hammer horror movie. I mean, gothic architecture, weird stained glass windows with angels killing demons with swords and shit, people getting burned at the stake. It was a warning sign, but all I could think about was what a great location for a music video. There's this guy at the altar. He's praying in Latin. Priest-looking dude, all dressed up, holding a staff with a big cross on it. We step forward, and he turns to us. We smile and wave. Uh, hey, Father, we're having a bit of car trouble, Ben tells him and states his case. I'm Father Michael, he says back. Welcome to Angel Town, the purest place in the world. Pretty big red flag there. He holds his staff up. I welcome you, like so many strangers before, as you make your ascension. Then, just like that, he bashes Ben's head in with his staff. That cross crushing his skull like an egg. We do a lot of blood and gore effects on stage, and, and I watch horror movies by the shitload, but, but I know the difference between fantasy violence and the real deal, and my best friend was just murdered in front of me. Lewis and I back away, but more of those psycho pilgrims are all around us. Prepare to be purified, sinners, Father Michael declares. We need to get the fuck out of here. Thinking quickly, I grabbed a nearby candlestick and I chunked it at them. Didn't work too long. Lewis has a better idea. Taking a collection plate and chucking it like a frisbee through the plate glass window. They get pissed at the property damage, but we make a break for it. We're out that window and I get cut up, but those wacko Puritans are on our asses. And I grin and bear it. This 
bell starts ringing and everyone stops what they're doing, and they're on our trail like flies on shit. The front path we took is blocked, so we run behind the church. We end up in a junkyard, but but it's not crap people throw away. It's, it's new cars, new TVs, new video games, modern clothes. And in the center are several poles with scorched bodies tied to them. Those plate glass windows, they were accurate, and, and I could tell that we were next. We look around, and outside of the junk, there's nothing but desert all around us. We're trapped. Then I see something that looks like it'll run. A motorcycle. It's our only way out. Lewis gets to work on fueling it up with some gas cans, and Father Michael and a bunch of those knife-wheeling Puritans are coming up. Then I remember how they reacted to something earlier. I rip off my shirt and I fly the random devil's satanic pentagram logo at them. They seize up in shock. Psycho murderers they may be, but they still are easily offended. For a moment, anyway. Didn't take long for them to return to the warpath and they wanted to murder my ass even more. Lewis throws a gas can to me and asks if I still have my cigarettes. I didn't, but... But I have my vape pen. As he revved up the bike, I, I turned the pin on and I shoved it in one of those tanks and I chuck it at Father Michael. After all that talk about purification, he got his comeuppance. The can exploded, burning off my eyebrows, but those assholes got blown away. Me and Lewis ride our bike off and never look back. We eventually make it to this gas station and we call for help. The cops don't find anything. It's like Angel Town was a literal ghost town. Who knows, maybe they uh, ascended. But all we can think about is Ben. Poor Ben. I mean, maybe we'll keep the music going just for him. Talk about killer critics. I'm glad to have such loyal fans as you, Cadavis. I hope you enjoyed our five stories about hauntings. And do come visit me again soon. We have many more short, scary stories to share. Sweet dreams, my little Cadavis. <laughs> You've made it through the night. Congrats. Let's get going before that changes. The five stories you've just heard were written by Jacob Davison. Tonight's production starred Todd Lights, Nicole Valella, Kayla Jeffries, and Todd Denson. With editing by my younger brother, Martin Martinez. I believe you can find your way home from here. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>